asking a trick question. They're seeking to trap him, the text tells us. They're seeking to do that by placing him in opposition to one or the other of them. And like the chief priests, scribes, and elders who came to Jesus at the end of chapter 11, and this was actually a delegation from a larger group like that, um, in that instance, in chapter 11, they asked him what they thought was an impossible question. And here we have men posing a question that may seem honest on the surface, but is really a trick question. And Jesus sees their hypocrisy, of course, and calls them on it. But let us turn to our text, and before we do, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask His mercy and blessing upon us as we seek to understand and submit to God's Word. Let us pray. Lord, Your Word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. Lord, as, as painful and as frightening as that may be, Lord, we need that. So, Lord, would you give us that? By your Spirit, would you work in with your Word in our hearts? Lord, conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus, our Savior. And, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way to God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. I want us to consider this passage under four headings. The truth, the trap, the question, and the answer. The truth, the trap, the question, and the answer. Mark plainly tells us in our, in our text this evening that this is a trap. But before we look at the nature of that trap, I want us to look at the truth that they said about Jesus. But that truth is given to us and was given in this setting in a very strange form. It's given in the form of flattery. Before these men ask this question that they're in which they are seeking to trap Jesus, they butter him up a little bit. They, they propose some flattering remarks. They talk about how great he is, hoping perhaps to gain his favor. Flattery is not a new thing, and we see it in a lighthearted way, perhaps, between two friends. You might hear a guy that says, hey, buddy, you know you're a great guy. Oh, by the way, would you go get me some more iced tea? But this flattery is much different. This, this flattery that we see here in our text is, is much more menacing with a much, ev much more evil intent. They were looking for a way to ensnare Jesus in his words. Jesus was a threat to both of these groups, and they wanted rid of him. We'll look at that a little bit more in a minute. 
First of all, though, as we consider the words that they said about the Lord Jesus, we see that there's really a double irony here. First, that they are praising Jesus for his integrity when they themselves are full of hypocrisy. And secondly, the other part of this is that the words that they are speaking under false pretenses really are true. What they said about Jesus was, in fact, the truth. And that's what they said. They said, we know, Jesus, that you are true. Jesus, of course, is true. He is genuine. He is pure. He is real. He is not counterfeit. He is not false. He is honest. He is not fraudulent. He is not false or pretended. His actions were guided by convictions and obedience to his Father, not by what seemed expedient. And the other things that they say really flow out of this. They say that he didn't care about others' opinions because he was driven by something far greater than what mere men thought of him. Neither was he swayed by appearances. He didn't show favoritism. And they, as they said, he faithfully taught the way to God. His message was always the same. He came preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins. These men start with the truth, but it comes in the form of flattery because they are trying to draw Jesus into their trap. And that's the next thing we want to look at is the, the trap that they are trying to set for Jesus. This word means to... It, it, it means to hunt or trap an animal. When I was a teenager, I, I didn't do this for very long, but I, my brother kind of got me into it where, where we would seek to trap fur-bearing animals. And the, the, I, the whole idea of it was to lay out a set in which there was, no, there was no, nothing that could be seen or smelled that would tip the animal off to what was lying in wait for them. Sometimes we would put some bait there to lure them into the trap in hopes that we would be successful in catching a raccoon or whatever it was. And that's what the Pharisees and the Herodians were trying to do. They were trying to lure Jesus in by the flattery and take him unawares. And it's interesting that these two groups would come together in this. The Herodians, as you might guess, were supporters of Herod. They were supporters of the Herodian dynasty. And so they were pro-Roman. The Herodians saw Jesus as a threat to their power and as one who might stir up the zealots in the land of Palestine and seek to over, that might seek to overthrow the power of Rome. The Pharisees, on the other hand, as you likely know, were the hardliners. They were the ones that were the sticklers for obedience to the law. They prided themselves in that. It was a Pharisee that I mentioned in my sermon this morning that stood talking about how great he was, how good he was at obeying the law, how he was so much better than this tax collector that was standing beside him. The Pharisees stood for the old ways, and they were solidly anti-Roman. They were waiting for a Davidic king that would come to overthrow the Romans that were in control of them. The Pharisees saw Jesus as a threat to their power as well, their power and influence in the religious realm. See, Jesus came with an authority not derived by men. And that was a threat to both, really, everyone in his day. It was a threat to the Pharisees because they didn't want him to, have to usurp their authority in the religious realm. 
He was a threat to the Herodians because they didn't want him to usurp any power or influence they had in the Roman government. So he was a threat to both of them. And these unlikely allies pose a question then to Jesus, trying to trap him. They had been sent on an official mission by these other leaders to seek to ensnare and discredit Jesus. And the question is simply about taxes. Taxes was common in that, were common in that day, but the question, as we will see here in a minute, was very politically charged. Taxes, as you know, is a, to is a topic that can become politically charged because, unfortunately, government has a, has a propensity to overtax its citizens. And I think that that was, was true in Rome in, that, in the day of Jesus. It comes to us, and we have to understand the history of this text, of the tax, I'm sorry, the history of the tax. R.T. France and his commentary gives us a great background of that. And this tax was the poll tax. And this was especially unpopular. It was institute, instituted in A.D. 6, near the time of Christ's birth. But following the establishment of this tax, there was a revolt led by a Jewish leader, Judas of the Galilean, and it was violently put down by Rome, as you might expect. However, the leader of this revolt, this, this revolt that came as a result of this poll tax, the leader of this revolt became a hero and became a rallying cry and, and led to an organized zealot movement that ultimately revolted again in AD 66, and that ultimately led to the destruction of the siege and the destruction of, Judah, um, of Jerusalem in AD 70. Of course, that had not happened at the time of our text, but it's just to give you a sense of the political electricity that was probably associated with this tax and with this coin. It was also politically charged because of what was on the coin. The coin was a denarius worth about a day's wages, but it had the image of the emperor on it. And if the image of the emperor was not enough to stir up frustration and anger in the minds of good Jews, there were the words that were inscribed on the coin, and those were these. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Words like that were not only scandalous in the eyes and in the minds of Jews, they were idolatrous as well. Words like this should never be written about a mere man, they thought, let alone about a, a pagan Roman. And then it is in this environment, in this politically charged environment, that this question comes to Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus had said yes... He would have been seen as pro-Roman and not a good Jew, thus alienating patriotic Jews. If he said no, he would be seen as a zealot and the, allow the Pharisees' legal means then to pursue him as a political agitator and rebel. These two groups think they have him. They think they have him in their crosshairs. There's no good answer. It's like two bullies on the playground having, a, having the little guy in the corner. And one says to the other, if he goes this way, you get him. If he goes the other way, I'll get him. But Jesus runs between their legs. But this text really isn't about Jesus' cleverness, although he does show great wisdom in his answer. It's not just about a gotcha moment. It's about what Jesus says and how it applies to us today. 
This brings us to our third point, and that is the question. These leaders have posed a question to Jesus, but what I want us to see under this point is the question from Jesus. As Jesus had done in a previous text that we just um, studied recently, he answers their question with another question. He wasn't doing this to evade the question. It was a common rabbinical way of interacting when questioned. But before we look at the question that Jesus asks, there's another little bit of delicious irony in this, in that Jesus asks for a coin. Jesus is not carrying this coin in his pocket that these people might think, some of that were questioning him might think he would have. Perhaps the coin was produced by one of the Herodians, I don't know. It doesn't seem like a, a good Pharisee would be carrying such a coin in his pocket or in his, in, his, in his satchel. The point is, is that Jesus didn't have one. But he asked for a coin and he says, let me look at it. Jesus knew whose image was on it. The people knew whose image was on it. But Jesus was drawing this out and drawing them in. Jesus then asks, and this is the question, whose image is this and whose inscription the ESV says likeness, but it, it's, the, it's the word from which we get image. They knew whose image it was. And when Jesus used that language, it probably reminded them of another image. It probably reminded them of Genesis 1.26, the image where God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That coin that Jesus asked them to produce and asked them about, that coin that probably made good Jews feel like they were breaking the first and second commandment, when they saw it, they had to recognize it was Caesar's image upon it. And here was Jesus, who was officially from Galilee, who this tax didn't actually apply to him. But he was a Jewish teacher, and perhaps they saw him as an objective third party to weigh in. But Jesus has more. And that is what we just mentioned, is that the image that was on the coin was Caesar. But the image that was on every one of them there today, that day, was God's. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God's what is God's. And that's our fourth point. That is the answer that Jesus gave. And in just a few words, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy and demolishes their efforts to trap him. And he puts allegiance to Caesar in its proper place as a distant second to allegiance to God. His teaching is, is very consistent with what Paul later taught in Romans 13, that we are to submit to earthly powers as instituted by God. However, it helps us to see that earthly powers are just that, earthly. We should not confuse the two. And we should never try to make Jesus fit into our political party. As Sinclair Ferguson said in his commentary, the man who is devoted to God does not make the issue of his political freedom the number one priority in his life. I think too often, especially in our past, the American church has tried to make Jesus red, right, red, white, and blue. And by that I mean that they equate political freedom with Christianity. But if you ask believers from China, 
They'll say, no, Christianity is much more than that. Don't get me wrong. I am patriotic. I will fly my flag on July 4th like the next guy. And, and I'll put out a lot more flags in the neighborhood as well. But, and I'm, I'm grateful for Christian leaders from our nation's history that have helped to establish and preserve the freedoms we enjoy today. However, there are things from our history that embarrass me. And I recognize that not every founder of our country were Christians. And sometimes, even the Christians didn't take the stands that they should have against injustice and against evil. Jesus is saying that there are earthly kingdoms. We live in them. He has established them. God gives them to you. And for some, we are blessed with freedom within them. For others, we are oppressed by them. Just look at Christians in the first century or Christians today in places where Christianity is against the law. And they seek to thrive and they are thriving in spite of the, the oppression from government. But Jesus is saying that his kingdom is much more important. That is where our true and lasting allegiance should lie. It doesn't mean that you can't love your country. I hope you do. But God And God has blessed Christians in the United States for two and a half centuries. And over the, the two and a half centuries since our nation was founded, the church has waxed and waned, often being blessed by our civic leaders and at times oppressed by them. But our church is not an, just an American church. True, we are part of the Presbyterian Church in America, but that is more a location of where we exist and worship and function. We are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not of this nation. You know what? We are really not even of this world. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is coming to gather his children from all over the world. We are brothers and sisters with saints from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that's if, if, you've, if you've ever been out of the U.S., and, and if you've ever taken a mission trip, that was one thing that struck me on the first mission trip that I took, was how God is, has believers all over this world. I recognize that you can't take a mission trip next week. And I don't usually do this, but I'm going to make a shameless plug for something from our library called Dispatches from the Front, in which the narrator shows you how the gospel is advancing in the corners, the far-flung corners of the world. They're worth watching because it's exciting to see how God is at work and how God is building his church. He is building his kingdom all around the world. So what difference does this make to you today? So what? What else do we need to get from Jesus's answer? His answer, as we can see, was 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 the, the, the end of the hopes of these men who wanted to trap him. But it's also the end of any hopes that you might have to live for yourself. For to give to God the things that are God's means to give him your all. That's why it was so interesting and, and ironic and exciting and poignant that Jesus used the words that he did. Because we have to recognize that God's image is upon every single person. Here and every single person in this world. 
And God has his stamp upon them, and therefore they are his. If they are, have repented and trusted in him for salvation, they are his children. But even if not, they are his creation, and they owe him their allegiance. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to him. And if you answer God's rightful claim upon you as an image bearer of him, then he asks your whole life of you. It's all to be used for, <clears throat> for his glory. And this is reinforcing what he has already told his disciples. And in chapter 8, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus will either be Lord of all or he will not be Lord at all in your life. Maybe you're here, maybe you're hearing this and you're recognizing that you don't know Christ. And you might be saying, wow, this is radical. Yes, it is. Following Jesus is a radical move. But let me ask you. How are things going without Jesus? If you are without Christ, you have an enormous load of guilt because you are a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Christ came to deal with our sin. He paid the penalty when he died upon the cross. Jesus died that you might be saved. If you want to answer Christ's call of radical discipleship, I would love to tell you more about that. Maybe you're here and you honestly recognize that even though you're trying to follow Christ, there is a part of your life that you feel like you just cannot surrender to God. Perhaps it's a pet sin that you love so much that you quite, can't quite let go of it. Or perhaps it's some sin that feels so dark and about which you are so ashamed that you feel terrified at the thought that it would be brought into the light. Or maybe, just maybe, it's a little of both. You hate your sin, but you love it too. Perhaps it's pornography, or same-sex attraction, or a flirtatious relationship that has gone too far. I mention these sins not because they're the worst sins, but they're often the types of sins that we keep the most deeply hidden. God has made us as sexual creatures, and issues like these tend to be hidden for a long time. And Jesus says, you know what? I died for that too. Your sexuality is part of my world, part of my dominion. Your sin, whatever it be, I can handle that, he says. Jesus navigated this politically charged question that came to him. He navigated the challenging adversaries that came his way. And he forever dealt with our sin at the cross. Whoever you are, saint or sinner alike, God's image is stamped upon you. Christ's call comes to you. Jesus says, give me your all. I love you and I have a home in heaven for those who repent, believe, and follow me. Let us pray.